This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. この人類の未来はこの Welcome to the Institute of the Americas. I'm Pradeep Khosla, Chancellor of UC San Diego. Today, we are coming together to celebrate the Kyoto Prize honorees. 
The Kyoto Prize is Japan's highest private award for lifetime achievement in the fields of advanced technology, basic sciences, and arts and philosophy. Awarded by the Inamori Foundation, the prize is presented to individuals and groups worldwide who have significantly contributed to the betterment of mankind. The Inamori Foundation and UC San Diego share similar missions. Our world-class faculty collaborate to advance revolutionary discoveries across multiple disciplines. Together, we drive innovations that advance society and drive economic impact. During this annual symposium, we are fortunate to hear from three distinguished Kyoto Prize lawyers. Dr. Robert G. Rader, this year's recipient of the Kyoto Prize in Basic Science. I'm delighted to hear him speak about his groundbreaking work in molecular biology. Now, I'd like to invite Dr. Kit Poliano, Dean of UC San Diego's School of Biological Sciences, to tell us more about Dr. Rader. Kit, on to you. I'm Kit Poliano. I'm pleased, really pleased to introduce um, distinguished professor Jim Cadenaga, who will then introduce Dr. Bob Rader. Uh, Jim is a distinguished professor and former chair of the section of molecular biology, and he's the current holder of the Amelin Chair in Life Sciences Education and Research. As an undergraduate in chemistry at MIT, Jim performed research with Dr. Rick Danheiser and received both the Alpha Chi Sigma Prize and the American Institute of Chemists Certificate in 1980. He carried out his graduate studies with Jeremy Knowles in the Department of Chemistry at Harvard University, where he, he was a DuPont Fellow. Jim was a postdoc with Dr. Bob Tejan at UC Berkeley as a Fellow of the Miller Institute for Basic Research and also of the American Cancer Society in the California Division and Lucille P. Markey Charitable Trust. He joined the UC San Diego faculty in 1988 and was one of 15 scientists to be named as a presidential faculty fellow by President George H.W. Bush in 1992. In 1994, Jim was elected as a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and in 95 as a fellow to the American Academy of Microbiology. Professor Kadanaga has served as the chair of the section of molecular biology and in 2012 received the UC San Diego's Chancellor's Associates Award for Excellence in Research in Science and Engineering. In 2017, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2020, he was elected to the Ravel College Faculty Fellow here at UC San Diego. Jim truly deserves our special thanks for going above and beyond and being a fantastic host um, for Professor Rader this week and hosting him at UC San Diego and in, the all, in all of San Diego, truly. So please welcome distinguished professor James Cadenaga. Oh, thanks, Kit. Um, well, first, I have to say it's a real privilege and, uh, and pleasure to introduce Bob, my long-term friend and colleague in the gene regulation field, uh, for his lecture for uh, the receipt of the Kyoto Prize. And um, we'll first like to start off with a little video, though, on Bob. Well, I was raised on a farm uh, in southern Indiana, in actually in a farming and coal mining area. I uh, 
got some interest in science from books like Popular Mechanics I subscribed to, which gave me ideas about small projects. I liked to figure out how things worked. Clocks were something I routinely dismantled and tried to put back together. Taking things apart, putting them together, and seeing how they, how they worked. A curiosity about how things worked. As I like to take a clock apart, I like to take a cell apart and to look at the individual components and then try to reconstruct events with, with purified uh, components. It sort of relates to the Feynman philosophy statement that's often quoted to say, I can't understand anything unless I can build it, recreate it. I thought it was important and complicated enough to understand how to make the RNA uh, to start with. And again, figuring out when to make it and how, and how to make it. So several years I spent measuring absolute rates of total RNA synthesis in cells, mostly in sea urchin embryos. And the sea urchin uh, development is easily monitored under a microscope, and it's very beautiful. I would collect urchins and bring them back, uh, you know, maybe 50 or 100, and bring them back to the laboratory. I did publish some papers related to them, but I just said there's uh, something more fundamental that I want to look at, and that's uh, the enzyme that copies DNA. There were only a very few labs trying to characterize the enzyme, the eukaryotic enzymes, or in particular the enzymes from animal cells. It was necessary for me to figure out some way to isolate the enzyme. So the, the critical, the breakthrough experiments of, of mine were uh, in the early hours of the morning on Valentine's Day, 1969, February the 14th, when I had chromatographically resolved three RNA polymerases. This was my uh, true eureka moment. Well, you know, this was one of those spiritual moments. You just uh, have a hard time believing. Uh, it was uh, a sort of spiritual experience for sure. It's been a self-imposed long, hard role to just keep understanding and making discoveries and understanding how... Uh, how things work for, for ultimate success and long-term success in this business one has to have a, an extreme passion my family uh, were farmers all of the farm work you know was uh, hard but the ability uh, to be diligent and hard-working was probably the single major attribute uh, leading to my success I wasn't afraid of hard work I guess we would say that the trials and tribulations uh, were worth it. Well, as you saw in the video, um, Bob was uh, born and raised in a farm in Boonville, Indiana. And um, Bob often talks about growing up on the farm, and not just when he's winning the Kyoto Prize. Um, and I think to know 
Bob Rader, the person, you, you really have to go back to his youth on the farm. And what do you see? Well, uh, you see good, honest, hard work, the determination to get the job done, and humility and respect for others. Uh, in high school, I know he's going to talk more a bit, but he's going to talk more about this, but Bob was uh, strong from working on that farm, and he excelled in football, and he was uh, named as an All-American first team uh, in the All-American All-Conference, sorry, All-Conference first team uh, as a linebacker. And, uh, but I think it was in his high school chemistry, uh, especially the chemistry lab, where he uh, found his ikigai, that's uh, Japanese for his inspiration in life. And uh, he was fortunately able to follow that up by uh, receiving a, a very special full scholarship to Wabash College that was for scholar-athletes, and they only gave one of those per year. Um, going forward to several years, Bob made, uh, launched, really, the, gene ex- the eukaryotic gene expression field with the discovery of the three RNA polymerases. And over the next 50-plus years, he followed that up with just uh, establishing the foundation of our knowledge of eukaryotic gene expression. Uh, you know, if you, if you think about scientific advances like, let's say, like tools or something, uh, I would say that Bob has given us the hammer, screwdriver, you know, and uh, like uh, wrench, let's say, okay, <laughs> for these types, types of tools for, for uh, doing, these are the, our research tools for, upon which we do our research every day in, in, in the area of biomedical research. Um, and as you might imagine, Bob knows absolutely everything there is to know about transcription. But more importantly than that, Bob shares that knowledge with other, with other people. And uh, he really encourages and inspires other people and really facilitates research so that Bob's contribution to the field really is not only the work from his own lab, but also all the work that he's really inspired and encouraged. And for all those reasons... Bob is um, admired and respected, uh, but also loved by his colleagues uh, and friends. All right, so, and I think the last thing I'll say about Bob, well, one of the last things I'll say about Bob is that he's really a fun guy, too. And once you get him going, he'll have you rolling on the floor. And I'll just, before I give the stage to Bob, I'll just have one little story, which is kind of one of my favorite stories about Bob, is goes back to 1986, where on a route to a conference in Kyoto. And I was, uh, at that time, a postdoc with Robert Tijan in Berkeley. And we were on the same flight from uh, the Tokyo Narita Airport to the uh, Osaka Itami Airport. And then as, after we deplaned, we kind of ran into, ran into each other and we're just kind of walking out of the airport and chatting. And for some reason, Bob ended up in the fast customs line and I ended up in the slow customs line. So. Bob zipped through, and I'm just still standing there. And I can see Bob sta- uh, standing on the other side, and there was another scientist who was kind of like nudging Bob, hey, let's get going. But uh, Bob didn't go. He stayed there, and he waited until I went through my slow line, and then we were able to resume our conversation. But I, I think that just tells you something about Bob, his character, and just his consideration for other people. Okay, well, anyway, here he is, the father of eukaryotic gene regulation, Bob Rader.
Well, first of all, uh, my thanks to Jim uh, for this kind introduction, but especially for his uh, yeoman's work done uh, organizing many of the events um, with the Kyoto Price Foundation uh, organization here over uh, the week. So I'm both honored and humbled to receive the 2021 Kyoto Prize in Basic Science. It's especially pleasing in view of the ideals and philosophy of the Enamori Foundation, and I graciously thank all those associated with the foundation. I also applaud the foundation and the San Diego Kyoto Prize organization for their support of this symposium and their efforts to further uh, scientific education, especially among young people. I now will briefly describe my scientific area and a little personal background before elaborating major scientific discoveries over my 50 years in this field. It's often stated that we are our genes, but perhaps more accurately, we are the products of our genes. According to the central dogma, DNA is transcribed into RNA and then translated on the ribosome to produce proteins with various enzymatic, structural, and regulatory functions. And remarkably, embryonic stem cells containing a complete set of genes give rise to different cell types with the same set of genes. Related, the normal formation and function of different cell types and many associated pathologies result from differential gene expression controlled primarily at the level of transcription. This makes it critical to understand the mechanisms that regulate transcription, and this has been my major objective and my passion for 50 years. Transcription is carried out by an enzyme called RNA polymerase, and this slide summarizes transcription in prokaryotes as a frame of reference for transcription in higher eukaryotes, higher organisms. The bacteria, for example, contain a single RNA polymerase, which is regulated through interactions with gene-specific activators, and then, as in eukaryotes, the enzyme makes a single-stranded copy uh, of the gene uh, of interest. As a preview, my major discoveries and achievements include the RNA polymerases 1, 2, 3, their distinct structures and functions, corresponding general initiation factors, the prototype gene-specific transcriptional activator, general gene-specific co-activators, causal roles for histone modifications in transcription, and biochemically defined cell-free systems that accurately transcribe specific genes and thus facilitate detailed mechanistic studies. Before discussing details, a little more personal background, some of which you've just heard. Uh, I was raised on a, born and raised on a farm in southern Indiana near the towns of Boonville, where Lincoln learned the law, lived nearby, and Jasper. My parents had very limited formal educations, but were caring parents who taught their children to be honest, humble, and diligent. And although diligence in school studies was expected, education beyond high school was not considered, and I was expected to stay on the family farm. This slide shows my family on a Sunday afternoon 
outing, actually visiting the Lincoln Memorial. Note that my brothers and I, in the lower left, are in overalls typically worn by farm boys. This shows me learning to drive a tractor in anticipation of future farm work. As a child, I had little exposure to science per se, but enjoyed trying to figure out how things worked, taking them apart, putting them together, and also building small devices like crystal radios, uh, small uh, electric motors, and model airplanes. One of the more memorable experience, memorable and fascinating experiences from my childhood was seeing a museum exhibit of Leonardo da Vinci, drawings and, and models of his futuristic machines, markedly stimulating my own imagination. Other activities included participation in 4-H club projects, mostly agricultural related, while my privileged city friends participated in the more interesting, or at least interesting to me, uh, Boy Scouts. In high school, I was especially interested in mathematics and chemistry. This shows me at my first shared lab bench. And although I had little time for extra curricular activities because of extensive farm chores, I did manage to convince my parents to let me play uh, football. I am number 33, team captain in the front row. Fortunately, with both a strong academic background and some football prowess, I received a full tuition scholarship to attend Wabash College, a small liberal arts college in Indiana with strong science departments. And although I had a primary interest in chemistry, I also became intrigued by biochemistry and the emerging molecular biology during a course taught by a new assistant professor, Tom Cole, shown here from Caltech. I was especially influenced by the classic 1961 Jacques Monod paper on gene regulation in bacteria, leading me to think about future studies in gene regulation, on gene regulation in animal cells. These interests led me to a graduate program at the University of Illinois. There, I joined the lab of Bill Rudder, shown here, an expiring mentor on aldolase, an inspiring mentor working on aldolase enzymes and pancreas development, albeit not transcription. Fortunately, he allowed me to initiate studies on transcription, which began after the laboratory moved to the University of Washington in Seattle in 1965. At the time, virtually nothing was known about gene regulation in animal cells, except that, as in bacteria, there were three major classes of RNA, messenger, ribosomal, and, and transfer. My initial studies focused on quantitative measurements of RNA synthesis in isolated nuclei and in cells during hormonal responses in rat liver and during sea urchin development. But at the time, it was not yet possible to monitor specific gene products in those pre-cloning days, so I decided to go to the heart of the transcription problem and to first identify the enzyme that transcribes DNA. As detailed later, this led to my discovery of RNA polymerases 1, 2, 3. This was a true eureka moment in my career, and it also guaranteed me uh, a noteworthy thesis. 
For postdoctoral studies, I joined the lab of Don Brown, another inspiring mentor who had purified the large ribosomal RNA genes that I suspected were transcribed by Paul one because of co-localization in the nucleolus. Surprisingly, I failed to see, failed to see specific transcription of these genes by the purified Paul one which led me to suspect that eukaryotic transcription would be more complicated than imagined, and it set the stage for my subsequent studies in my own lab at Washington University, St. Louis. Returning to my graduate work, and in relation to the isolation and identification of the eukaryotic RNA polymerases, Sam Weiss, in, in 1959 to 1960, had shown that nucleoside triphosphate-dependent RNA synthesis uh, both in isolated nuclei and in a, a derived chromatin aggregate. In 64 to 69, several labs had reported only a single chromatographic peak of RNA polymerase activity, suggestive of a single enzyme, but they had employed low-salt, low-yield extraction procedures that were inadequate. In 68 to 69, I realized that unlike the bacterial situation, most RNA polymerase was chromatin bound, that is engaged in transcription, and I systematically developed new extraction and purification procedures that included isolation of cell nuclei, high salt sonication to dissociate histone DNA and polymerase complexes, dialysis to low salt to precipitate the DNA histone, leaving a quantitatively solubilized uh, RNA polymerase, and then ion exchange to chromatography to resolve uh, Pauls 1, 2, and 3. This shows my laboratory notebooks and my thesis with volume 12 uh, containing the information on my uh, initial discovery and characterization of the RNA polymerases. This shows me collecting sea urchins in the frigid waters uh, near Seattle. And sea urchins were the organism in which Pauls 1, 2, and 3 were first discovered. This shows uh, some of the sea urchin embryo developmental stages at which I characterized the RNA polymerase activities. This shows a chromatographic resolution of three nuclear RNA polymerases in February 1969. The red, uh, the red lines show the resolution of the individual polymerases one, two, and three. This work resulted in my first publication, a Nature article. Of note, the paper was submitted to Nature August 5th, 69, and initially rejected on the grounds that it was not of general interest. Not a, not a happy moment, but happily it was published October 18th, same year as originally submitted. So the identification of the distinct RNA polymerases in 1969 was foundational, but as it turns out, and as you will see, just the tip of the iceberg. As discussed in my 2003 Lasker Award commentary, the eukaryotic transcription machinery, complexities, and mechanisms unforeseen, and also in my 2019 NSMB review entitled 50 plus years of eukaryotic transcription an expanding universe of factors and mechanisms. 
Having three enzymes, the next task was to identify specific RNA polymerase functions. In this case, we took advantage of the mushroom toxin alpha amanitin, uh, and based on comparisons uh, of the differential sensitivities of alpha amanitin with the purified polymerase, sorry, based on comparisons of the differential alpha-manitin sensitivities of the purified enzymes shown by these dashed lines with the sensitivities of the synthesis of specific RNAs by endogenous RNA polymerases. And as you can see, the synthesis of the messenger RNA coincided with uh, the sensitivity of Pol2, the sensitivity of 5S and tRNAs coincided with the sensitivity of polymerases 3 and the insensitivity of ribosomal RNA synthesis corresponded with the uh, insensitivity of Pol1. Uh, those data are summarized here, clearly indicating distinct functions of the RNA polymerases in the synthesis of the major classes of RNA. This scenario is distinct from that in prokaryotes, which have one enzyme for all classes of RNA, and it provides a convenient means for the independent regulation of the global synthesis of the major classes of RNA, for example, during growth state changes. The results also allowed focus on specific polymerase gene combinations in attempts to reconstitute specific gene transcription with purified components. Given these important findings, the next question was to assess the structural basis for the distinct RNA polymerase functions. In 1970 to 71, the Rudder and Chambone labs had reported distinct but incomplete subunit structures of Pols 1 and 2 from rat liver and calfthymus. And in my own lab, by 1974, we had purified to homogeneity all three polymerases from mouse tumor cells and the electrophoretic resolution, the subunit shown in the left panel, emphasizes the very complex and distinct structures of these enzymes. The panel on the right shows uh, results obtained about 20 years later by the Young and Sentinec labs when they had purified the homologous yeast enzymes and cloned the, in, the individual subunits. And those analyses revealed some common, some unique, and some related subunits also related to subunits in the bacterial enzyme. So these results revealed a molecular basis for some common enzymatic properties as well as their distinct specificities and regulation uh, of the enzymes. Given the distinct enzyme structures and functions, the next task was to establish accurate transcription of specific genes by purified RNA polymerases for mechanistic analyses. In other words, the objective was to reproduce in vitro, in a test tube, the transcription events that happen in living cells. The initial studies from 69 to 78 were quite disappointing, frustrating. Incubation of cloned genes with purified enzymes failed to yield any specific transcription. However, uh, as an important stimulus for further studies, our demonstration, we demonstrated in 1977, accurate transcription of the 5S genes in natural chromatin by a purified RNA polymerase 3, and that data is shown in the left panel. 
Uh, one advantage of the system we used, uh, Oversight Crumbleton, was that there were 30,000 5S active genes in, that, in those cells. So these results demonstrated a functional POL3 as well as chromatin-associated accessory factors. By 1979, we had succeeded in deriving uh, an extract from that chromatin, which, when incubated with the purified enzyme and the 5S genes, led to specific transcription, as shown in the panel on the right. So these results indicated a functional uh, RNA polymerase 3, soluble accessory factors, and was also shown that the transcription of those genes were highly specific for Pol 3. In the same year, we also showed accurate transcription by Pol 2 with an extract of soluble factors. In this case, we used the adenovirus major late promoter, which had a very well-characterized natural initiation site uh, as, shown, as shown here. So incubation of that uh, promoter fragment with the polymerase and a HeLa cell extract led to generation of this very specific transcript indicating initiation at the natural site. The inclusion of alpha-amanitin to inhibit the polymerase uh, led to a loss of transcription, and we did not see the transcription when the extract uh, was omitted. We obtained essentially the same results in studies of the, of the beta-globin gene promoter, uh, and another important point from both of these results is indicated here. Red blood cells normally synthesize or actively transcribe globin genes. HeLa cells, of course, do not uh, express globin genes, but our observation was that extracts derived from HeLa cells could actively transcribe the globin gene DNA template. And a similar situation prevailed for adenovirus 2 gene transcription, which normally requires some specific viral proteins. So these results led to the prediction and the later discovery of general initiation factors, a general repression mechanism for all genes, and gene-specific transcription factors to reverse the repression. In 1980, we succeeded in fractionating uh, these extracts to yield for RNA polymerase 3 to general initiation factors 3B and 3C, as well as the gene-specific factor 3A. In the case of Pol2 transcribed genes, the fractionation yielded four chromatographic fractions with activity that were later resolved by us and other laboratories into uh, factors called 2A, B, D, E, F, and H. The complete purification studies in several labs then, including our own, led to the complete purification of these factors, the cloning and validation of individual subunits. A typical chromatographic fractionation is shown on the left, uh, a number of columns that separate proteins on the basis of charge or hydrophobicity or size. Uh, can be used to separate the factors and then many more steps involved in their ultimate purification. The final purified factors are shown on the upper right panel and transcription uh, by Paul II uh, is shown in the bottom and the this particular panel shows a complete dependence on all of these factors for optimal transcription. Having identified the general initiation factors, the next task 
was to elucidate the mechanisms involved in specific transcription initiation. In the case of Paul III genes, transcribed genes are early studies with human factors indicated recognition of the promoter by factor 3C, which in turn facilitated the recruitment and function uh, of uh, the recruitment of factors 3B and Paul III to form a functional pre-initiation complex about 25 polypeptides. Similar studies uh, in yeast by the Geideschek and Sentinac labs also showed a similar pathway and provided uh, much more detail on the pathway. The similar principles uh, were shown to pertain uh, for RNA polymerase II transcribed genes. In our very early studies, we showed that initiation factor TF2D recognized the the core promoter consisting mainly of this Tata element and subsequent studies in my own and other laboratories, particularly the Sharp, Garanti, and Reinberg labs, showed the sequential assembly of these factors into a pre-initiation complex containing about 44 polypeptides. The incubation of these pre-initiation complex with the nucleoside triphosphate precursors led to specific initiation and elongation on the DNA templates. The next seminal event in this journey was the discovery of gene and cell-specific transcriptional activators. These were predicted based on precedent from bacterial studies and the promiscuity of the general transcription machinery, which I mentioned earlier, necessitating some mechanism to achieve gene and cell-specific transcription. The first of these factors was the 5S gene-specific TF3A. It is the prototype DNA-binding transcriptional activator in eukaryotes. It was purified in my lab on 19, in 1980 on the basis of a functional transcription assay and shown to bind and activate the 5-SRNA gene. The panel on the left shows that in that transcription assay, the, the tRNA genes were robustly transcribed by the polymerase 3B and 3C, whereas the 5S gene required, in addition, the factor TF3A. The panel in the middle simply shows an electrophoretic analysis of the purified protein, and the panel on the right shows uh, a demonstration uh, of the specific promoter binding by a so-called DNA's footprint assay of TF3A. So following these studies in 1980, we succeeded in the cDNA cloning of TF3A, which provided the first protein sequence of a eukaryotic transcription factor and led to the deduction by Aaron Klug of the so-called zinc finger motif, which is the most common DNA binding motif uh, in eukaryotic transcription factors. Mechanistically, we showed that TF3A bound initially to the 5-SRNA gene and in turn recruited TF3C, which on this gene uh, is not directly recognized, initially recognized by TF3C, and then TF3C in turn facilitates the recruitment of 3B and Paul 3 as described for the tRNA uh, gene. So this represented the first mechanism of action, the first defined mechanism of action of any gene-specific transcriptional activator in eukaryotes and notably is distinct from the prokaryotic mechanisms involving direct activator polymerase interactions.
In the next four years, another four gene-specific transcription activators for POL2 transcribed genes were described by half a dozen labs, including my own. There are currently about 1,600 of these factors known are projected. They typically consist of uh, a DNA binding domain to target uh, the specific gene and an activation domain that results in somehow in transcriptional stimulation in association with the uh, general transcription machinery. Many of these factors are master transcriptional regulators of cell fate and determination, differentiation, some of which are summarized here. In 1987, Weintraub showed that Expression of myOD in a fibroblast resulted in differentiation into a muscle cell. Yamanaka in 2006 showed that expression of only four factors in a fibroblast could convert it to a pluripotent stem cell. That work being recognized by the Kyoto Prize, the Nobel Prize, and many others. Now, what I like about these studies is they emphasize not only the physiological significance, but also the real power of transcription factors, their ability to change cell fate. Given their extreme biological significance, the next task was to establish the mechanism of action of gene-specific and cell-specific activators. So the question here is, once these factors are bound to DNA, how do they influence the formation and function of the pre-initiation complex on the target genes? Surprisingly, in studies in my own and other labs, the activators fail to function with highly purified POL2 and initiation factors, and functional, assay, functional biochemical assays in several labs then identified essential co-activators in the early 1990s. So this leads to the, uh, uh, to the issue of cofactors that operate directly on the transcriptional machinery. Amongst these are the TBP-associated factors, or the TAFs in TF2D, that were initially identified in Drosophila, by the Tesian lab and initially identified in human cells by my own and the laboratory of Arnie Burke. The mediator, a large 30 subunit complex, was initially identified in yeast uh, based on biochemical and genetic assays in the Young and Kornberg labs and initially identified in human cells on the basis of biochemical assays, which also uh, provided the first demonstration of direct interactions with transcriptional activators. The coactivator OCA-B is a B-cell-specific coactivator identified in my lab, shown to be selective for OCT1, OCT2-bound genes in B-cells, and was the prototype for a now ever-expanding class of gene and cell-specific coactivators. The the TAFs and the mediator are both generally required for activation function, and I'll show you an, an example of a biochemical assay to document that. This assay involves the general initiation factors using either the parental TF2D with 15 subunits or the derived Tata binding uh, polypeptide, which directs it to the core promoter, and then studies with additions of activator or mediator. 
in the absence uh, of activator or mediator, if there's a basal level of transcription that's unaffected by the activator or the mediator, but both together give this very robust transcription. Using TBP in place of the parental 2D gives a basal transcription that's unaffected by the mediator or the activator. So these results together show that the activator function requires the mediator and at least some of the TAF components of TF2D. Um, as a few examples to uh, amplify those results, I show here uh, a summary of some of the mediator studies. The mediator basically serves as a bridge between activator, between enhancer-bound activators and the general transcription machinery uh, at the promoter. In the case uh, in indicated here, our studies with liganded nuclear receptors showed that those receptors interacted with the mediator through the MED1 subunit, and those interactions were through the detailed interactions uh, shown here. So this model was based on biochemical assays, and as one example of a more physiological assay, we validated those interactions in a mouse embryo fibroblast-based model of PPAR gamma-dependent adipogenesis. So as first shown in the Spiegelman lab, mouse embryo fibroblasts can be differentiated into adipocytes with some inducing factors and the master regulator, PPAR gamma. And those adipocytes are shown here. They're identified by staining the endogenous lipids with a dye called oil red O. So this shows the natural differentiated MEFs. The panel on the right shows that under the same conditions, the cells lacking MED1 fail to differentiate, and they also show impaired PPAR gamma target gene expression. So these kinds of studies have served to validate uh, the biochemical studies and demonstrate the physiological significance. This slide summarizes uh, one of the mechanisms we uncovered for TAF coactivators, namely interactions uh, with enhancer-bound activators that can facilitate TF2D binding. In studies of E-proteins, which are important for B-cell differentiation, we showed that the binding of E-proteins to the E-box stimulates TF2D binding to the promoter and subsequent transcription. We showed that this involves a direct E-protein TF2D interaction through this little activation domain three in the TAF homology domain. So these results extended our earlier studies that first showed physical and functional interactions between activators and TF2D, as well as studies, other studies from a number of laboratories showing activator TAF interactions, but showing no underlying mechanism for those interactions. And other studies uh, from Jim Katanaga's lab showed that showed distinct TAF functions through interactions with downstream core promoter elements. And in relation to this B cell specific coactivator, it was identified as a coactivator for immunoglobulin genes in biochemical studies. Mouse genetic studies showed that it was required for the formation formation of germinal centers which are necessary for immune responses in the secondary lymphoid tissues in mice. We also showed the activation of key B-cell 
uh, specific genes such as BCL6, which encodes the master regulator of B-cell differentiation. And we showed that it interacts uh, through an interaction, it acts through an interaction with the mediator in association with this OCT1-2 DNA binding factor and another cofactor called MEF2B. Uh, so this it gives an example of a sort of complex network of coactivator functions. Given their natural location within cells, we next analyze transcriptional regulation of genes in the more natural chromatin context. So as is well appreciated, our genomic DNA it interacts with core histones, a core histone optimer, to form nucleosomal structures, which provide the first level of uh, chromatin organization, generating 11 nanometer fiber that can be uh, organized into higher fibers in association with linker histone H1. And importantly, these, the N-terminal tails of these core histones can be are subject to acetylation, methylation, phosphorylation, ubiquitylation, and other modifications at specific sites. So this introduces another class of uh, the coactivators, ATP-dependent chromatin remodeling factors and histone-modifying factors. These factors were discovered in other laboratories, not my own, but we were interested in looking at the integrated functions of these cofactors with the other activators and coactivators that we had described. The strategy for these studies is indicated here. It's to analyze the repression of repressed chromatin templates by purified factors. So I remind you of what I showed earlier, that DNA templates are promiscuously transcribed by the general transcription machinery. Uh, and it was shown by the labs, by my own lab and the labs of Luce uh, and Kornberg and Katanaga, that assembly of those uh, templates into chromatin represses uh, this promiscuous activity. The subsequent strategy is to incubate those templates with the general initiation factors, activators, cofactors including the chromatin modifying factors, and there were some very pioneering experiments done in that relation by the laboratory of my former uh, postdoc Jerry Workman and again by Jim Katanaga, showing histone acetyl transferase dependent uh, transcription in those systems. The detailed system that we have used is shown here, and again it's based on uh, Katanaga results. Uh, a DNA template of interest is assembled into chromatin with uh, using DNA and recombinant histones from bacteria using these assembly factors. The, the chromatin shown in this beads on its string structure up here is then incubated with activators and acetyl or methyltransferases to modify chromatin. And then for transcriptional readout, it's either incubated with a nuclear extract or uh, in our most recent studies with a completely defined system containing the polymerase, initiation factors, the coactivators, and elongation factors with a total system containing well over 100 polypeptides. And the advantage of this system, it allows analyses with recombinant histones that can be either wild-type natural histones, or they can be mutated in the modification sites, or they can be pre-modified and, and used to establish causal effects of histone 
modifications and direct effects and mechanisms of action of coactivators. Uh, I'll summarize some early studies here in uh, 20 years ago. We studied the acetyltransferase P300 in conjunction with two arginine methyltransferases uh, with, this, with their specific modifications indicated here. Later studies, we studied the acetyltransferase P300 in conjunction with two uh, histone methyltransferases that modify histone-3-lysine-4 at the promoter or at the enhancer. These results showed co ordered cooperative interactions and functions in transcription, and importantly, they established causal effects on histone modifications on transcription based on the fact that acetylation of something was required, and secondly, the fact that mutations in the histone modification sites eliminated the coactivator functions and transcription. These studies were critical since we, in 1980, 1997, and later others showed that histone-modifying cofactors can also functionally modify many transcription factors. And the more common cell-based genetic assays show only correlations of histone modifications with transcription and do not identify the essential substrates. I will show you a couple of examples. In this slide, uh, this is an experiment analyzing the function the P53, P300 dependent transcription, which is shown here, and putting lysine to arginine mutations in the histones that block acetylation showed that while mutations in the H2A, H2B histones had no effect, mutations in the H3 and H4 tails had very dramatic effects on transcription, clearly showing that um, these modifications were essential. A related experiment on H3K4 trimethylation is shown here. The panel on the left shows that the, the P53, P300 dependent transcription, which, which can be enhanced with the set one complex that, that generates H3K4 methylation, but we can also show, what we also show is that the pre-incorporation of a semi-synthetic H3K4 trimethyl analog into this stimulates the transcription quite dramatically without the enzyme that normally deposits that mark. So this provides very uh, convincing evidence that the methylation mark can be stimulatory for transcription. So the principal discoveries and achievements, again, are structurally and functionally distinct RNA polymerases, corresponding general initiation factors, gene and cell-specific transcriptional activators, general and gene-specific, cell-specific co-activators, related mechanisms through the use of biochemically defined transcription systems, and a chromatin-based general repression mechanism and causal roles for histone modifications in transcription. And this uh, image here gives you just a visual perception of the complexity of the overall process with activators, again, roughly 1,600, generating the primary level of control but requiring a variety of co-activators, dozens, uh, in a secondary level of control. These discoveries uh, have been foundational for subsequent and future studies of a number of uh, 
uh, things that I will summarize here. First of all, the, the high-resolution X-ray cryo-EM studies of the Paul 123 transcriptional machineries, and, and those have been really spectacular studies in recent years. The cellular and genomic analyses of gene activation mechanisms, cellular imaging studies of gene activation mechanisms, mechanisms underlying distal enhancer promoter interactions and functions, emerging roles of what's called phase separation or biological condensates in gene activation, a transcriptional regulatory circuits, and, and very importantly, the molecular basis in a therapeutic manipulation of aberrant transcription factor functions and regulatory circuits that are found in many human pathologies, development, cancer, diabetes, to name a few. So I'd like to end by acknowledging uh, my undergraduate, graduate, and postdoctoral mentors that I've previously mentioned, my many colleagues in the very broad uh, transcription field, my family who have unfailingly <coughs> supported my dedication to science, uh, a large cadre, over 100 of graduate and postdoctoral trainees. This slide uh, shows uh, some of those extraordinary trainees uh, on the occasion of my 17th birthday celebratory symposium last year. Oh, sorry, it was 10 years ago. <laughs> and finally, I'd like to again thank the Inamori Foundation and the San Diego Kyoto Prize Organization and host institutions and colleagues for this uh, wonderful week in San Diego. Thank you very much. Well, we've collected a, just a few questions for uh, for Bob, so that just for um, just about you know, his life and just science and just anything in general. And so, uh, so I thought I'd run some of these questions by Bob and see what he says. And uh, the first question is um, it's kind of a multi-part question, but what sparked your interest in science? Um, you know, like, was there like a moment when you decided you really wanted to be a science scientist? Well, you know, I did, among some of the things I mentioned, I was mesmerized by watching under a crude, under a microscope, multi, uh, single cell organisms uh, jumping around, wondering uh, what they were uh, doing. I... I didn't really start working in a lab. I, I showed you a picture of my first, my first lab work was simply in a chemistry course doing some usual uh, chemistry experiments. I started um, as an undergraduate. I did work in a lab, and I had some sort of very basic lab experience there, not so much biochemistry or molecular biology. I was studying... Uh, studying planaria regeneration with an investigator at Wabash College, and it was pretty mesmerizing to see that you could chop off a head and watch it regrow, or you could split the head and it would grow two heads. But the question was, you know, how was all that happening? Uh, I knew a lot about something about molecules at the time, so there had to be a uh, an underlying basis that could be um, that could be explored. Uh, so I think there was a general buildup of 
interest in science. I mentioned the Da Vinci exhibit, which I have to say was just mesmerizing, seeing his drawings of human physiology, seeing the mechanical devices that he had, really futuristic mechanical devices, and you know, wondering if those could actually ever be built uh, uh, or worked. So uh, the Eureka moment that really convinced me of what I wanted to do, though, was this discovery of RNA polymerase too. This really said, all right, I've got a long future here to hopefully figure this out. And as I said, (laughs) I I certainly didn't appreciate 50 years ago that it was going to be so complicated. (laughs) And no one did, as you know, as well as anyone else. Absolutely. No idea about that. Um, Did growing up on a farm influence how you do science today? I think you hit on the principles, features in your introductory comments. Growing up on a farm, I was really busy with hard farm work with not too much else to think about except doing well in high school. Uh, Again, the single feature derived from that was was really (laughs) being able, uh, being taught to be diligent and persistent in affairs and you know being able to work hard without complaining much and just proceeding to get whatever job done uh, to get the job of the day uh, uh, the day done so really it was again just diligence hard work that was necessary to be applied to the complex problems that I and others, uh, including you, uh, started to pursue in future years. Here's a more technical question. Um, when you discovered the three RNA polymerases, you showed us that um, the, the DE52 column, I guess, or DAE cephalose um, column, uh, and you separated the three of them. Um, how, do you know, how did you know that there were three different polymerases as opposed to just kind of three versions of the same polymerase? Now, this is an excellent question, but let me preface by saying there were already many studies in the literature of so-called isozymes, mainly metabolic isozymes. There would be uh, uh, lactate dehydrogenases, which were studied by the Kaplan group, heart and muscle forms. Of course, nobody knew in those days how they were different because you didn't know the protein sequences. But the simple fact is, seeing these three peaks of activity, there was no way that we really knew how similar or different they were. And until we did the functional studies, they could have been artifacts of protein degradation, something that resulted in some altered physical properties that led them to be chromatographically distinct, but we did show they were chromatographically distinct, they had different ionic properties, and then eventually uh, the alpha amanantin sensitivity, but there again, a proteolytic, uh, some kind of modification could have changed that property. It was really not until the functional studies were done that these enzymes looked almost... It looked different from a functional standpoint and likely had some underlying uh, uh, structural features. Now, the problem, uh, uh, the issue that you saw from the slide, those enzymes 
they're basically evolutionary uh, variants because they have some common subunits, they have some unique subunits, and some shared subunits. So whether you, uh, how you really want to define them, the important point is that mm, they are complex, important enzymes, and everything so was figured out. It actually, I mean, you, it really took some number, uh, quite a bit of work to actually really solidify that concept then, I guess. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I, you know, the important thing that we did not do, but I alluded to, was was the purification and of the yeast enzymes and the cloning of the individual subunits by the Young and Sentinec labs. The reason that was accomplished in yeast, because the enzymes were much more abundant in yeast and easily uh, purified uh, and studied, but those were... The definitive studies on the structure because they provided the protein sequence. You know, that SDS gel you showed of the three polymerases, was, was that Roberto Weinman's work? No, uh, the, the three, I had three students uh, working on the purification. And again, this exemplifies the issue for the young scientists that you need to choose the proper system to achieve your results. Although we had originally identified the enzymes in sea urchins, I didn't have a marine station close by when I was had my own lab. Um, the rat liver enzymes weren't as abundant, but we discovered rapidly growing tumor cells, mouse plasmacyte tumor cells, were super abundant in the enzymes. And so we chose those to purify the enzyme. And one student uh, worked on the Pol 1 and Pol 2. And another student, who's now a leading ophthalmologist in Miami, uh, worked on the purification of uh, RNA polymerase 3, and it was he who actually ran that gel that showed this beautiful resolution. And actually what was not shown in those slides, he even identified... uh, a variant, two polymerase three variants that differ in a single subunit, and they are from different genes, and they are one of them is more abundant in cancer cells and in uh, uh, and in embryonic stem cells. So there's some variation at the at the at the level there. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have to say that was like 1974, but in the year 20, 2022, I think we'd be hard pressed to find a lab that can actually do the same work that you did in 1974. When we published a paper recently on those two isoforms by studying them in mice to to try to identify some individual functions, we showed an electrophoretic analysis of the enzymes that were used in some of those studies. And my ex-student in Miami uh, said, you know, those were not nearly as nicely resolved and clean as the enzymes I showed you in 1974, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay. Um, here's another question on just a different area. Uh, do, you, what do, you, do you have a feeling, what, is there something that really bothers you is like, let's say, like the major unsolved mystery in gene expression or something that you really want to know? You can, yeah, the question of major unsolved problems. And, of course, my... Uh, Scientific life is dedicated to gene expression and primarily to transcription. So there, of course, gene expression is regulated at many levels, transcription and RNA 
processing and RNA turnover and protein synthesis, but I have a one-track mind being interested in transcription, so I'll comment um, in that arena. One of the really big surprises initially was this discovery of so-called enhancers, regulatory sequences that... in in contrast to the situation in bacteria, where the regulatory sequences are close to the promoter, in in uh, higher eukaryotes, and particularly in mammalian cells, enhancers can be hundreds of kilobases away, extraordinary distances. And the question of how they function in time and space, I don't think is uh, uh, completely resolved. First of all, they've proved from studies in many labs, to be extraordinarily complicated with, with many, many uh, binding sites for many, many different transcription factors. So I still think uh, a big question is, uh, mechanistically, how do they work in terms of their communication with the promoter? And these days there are studies even suggesting that there are not really strong direct or at least persistent direct contacts. Contacts. I, I prefer the idea that there might be transient com, uh, contacts because they're elegant, compelling structural studies of the mediator in association with the pre-initiation complex, and I don't believe those are irrelevant. So understanding how enhancers work uh, at a distance... Uh, actually, there's another issue of biological redundancy. So there are examples of genetic elimination of certain transcription factors that have been otherwise implicated in a pathway but don't seem to have any uh, strong requirement uh, when analyzed in a natural context. And I think that exemplifies a, uh, it's a sort of fail-safe device in organisms to... Uh, have alternate pathways when something goes wrong with one pathway. I would call it something like biological robustness, which has been studied by uh, by many. Uh, you know, by so that's basically uh, one example. That the other very hot topic that uh, some of you here know these days is the issue of. Uh, phase separation of biological condensates. How important are they? The easiest thing to see visually is that the sites of ribosomal RNA synthesis of the very reiterated ribosomal genes are organized in little membrane-free vesicles inside the nucleus, and those are clearly phase-separated components. But other studies that are, that's again, very popular these days are showing condensates in test tubes and condensates in cells, uh, not always under physiological conditions. So, but uh, there's compelling evidence that the disordered region, in, in, which is typical of many proteins, particularly transcriptional activators, is, uh, is important. So I think uh, understanding exactly how those function and that will, of course, relate to enhancer, uh, uh, to enhancer function. So, uh, and, and beyond that, the overall three-dimensional uh, uh, organization of the nucleus and how these uh, compartments regulate transcription is exceedingly uh, interesting and 
and still under study. Great. Um, do you, just kind of even more broadly, do you, what, what do you think the, is the next major goal or goals for biomedical research or, or maybe any vision you, or prediction you might have for the future that might happen? Well, that's uh, certainly a critical question. I mean, I would say in general, um, in general, uh, using the basic information that we have on just everything we know about uh, how genes are are expressed, regulated, uh, and, and how the gene products function, uh, because we know that many cases where there's misfunction of those, uh, either through mutation or through overexpression. So basically, therapeutic approaches based on our, on our basic knowledge of the workings of uh, the machinery in the cell is going to be extremely important. In the case of the, the transcription field that's near to my heart, um, it's it's been it's easier to transcribe sorry it's easier to target enzymes so there's a lot of activity with all the chromatin modifying factors that have enzymatic activities to develop small molecule inhibitors of the enzymatic activity what's harder is targeting all the protein protein interactions which have sort of smaller interfaces no enzymatic activity but happily, there's been some success in that area with, with the ability to screen millions of, of small molecules, in either natural products or ones generated by, uh, by the chemists. And some of those are uh, being used to target protein-protein interactions. Interestingly, some of those are functioning not by targeting the protein-protein interface, but by targeting another site in one of the molecules that affects allosterically the interaction. Uh, so, so therapeutics are, are clearly uh, what one would like to see from all of the basic information and then applying it to whatever uh, pathology is at hand, whether it's various cancers or whether it's... Uh, developmental abnormalities or whether it's uh, um, homeostasis problems. But, you know, related to that, just the issue of gene therapy uh, itself, the ability to correct uh, modified genes. And, of course, there are many, many ethical issues associated with that about where and when you can do it. Blood cells... Is an easier example. Is an example where where it's uh, much easier to do to manipulate cells outside an organism and, and replace them. But uh, you know, gene uh, therapeutics and uh, gene editing for uh, diseases is you know the future. Understanding stem cells and how you can generate organs and so forth is. Uh, you know, ultimately, also involves gene expression programs and um, and pathways. I mean, I, I think that should all make us feel you know a little more optimistic about the future, right? With all these things that are up that we can, that can be done. But, but I still maintain the success of all that. Ultimately, is 
not forgetting basic science at the expense of just therapeutic uh, trans- translational studies that uh, who would who would have predicted from the studies of those repeated sequences in bacteria what would uh, plants would come out in terms of uh, of crispr systems um, last one is um, last question is do you have any advice or recommendation for young scientists or perhaps you know, budding scientists? For young scientists. Well, first of all, I hope we continue through programs such as the one that's uh, here to, to be able to interest young people in science uh, as opposed to the many other interesting uh, professions of, uh, that you all uh, know about. But I think it's important for for young scientists to sort of look into various areas and to pick something that's really of primary interest, even if it doesn't seem that particularly relevant to something. Just pick something that's in, intuitively, intrinsically interested. And, and as I said in that amusing introductory um, uh, uh, presentation uh, you, ultimate success I think depends on really having a passion you really in science I think need to have a passion for what you're doing to to have it please you and to ultimately uh, succeed in doing it but so I would say for the younger younger crowd at the at the graduate postdoctoral level to also pick mentors who are going to be uh, who are going to be interactive and uh, and helpful to you, and also you know give you some freedoms to kind of pursue some of your own ideas. I mean, my own example: I was in a lab that didn't do anything on transcription. No, it's like a side project, right? I guess. Yeah, and and you know at the same time when you start your own lab to make sure that uh, you appropriately guide your students and postdocs and also give them freedom to explore some of their own ideas, encourage them to think independently and to to, uh, uh, do some other uh, experiments at the same time. But I'm speaking from my own experience that was uh, very helpful in that regard. (laughs) Yeah, that did work out a bit, huh? (laughs) Okay, well, thanks so much, Bob. My pleasure. なるであろうと確信をいたしております。You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.